Welcome to Pages from Before, a podcast which reviews the history of American states as recorded in our local newspapers. My name is Creighton Olson, and each week I'll travel through four pieces of one state's history, written in 1870, 1920, 1970, and 1995. Join me live on Twitch for recording and discussions every Thursday, or just catch the podcast later wherever you listen. So, pull up a chair around your telegraph, radio, television, or browser, and let's read some pages from before. Hi, and welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of Pages from Before. Today, celebrating the great state of New Jersey, and I promise that is the last time I will ever use a Jersey accent in this podcast. Uh, We're going to get straight to it, guys. As usual, we have got some cracking articles today to read through, including one of my favorite articles that I've ever stumbled across here, uh, beginning from 1870. Uh, It's all about the 4th of July celebrations that occurred in Bridgeton, New Jersey on July 8th, 1870. It's some delightful Americana. The language is flowery. The prose is lurid. And it is such a great slice of life that I couldn't wait to bring it to you anymore. So uh, let's, let's dig right in today to our first article from the West Jersey Pioneer out of Bridgeton, New Jersey. The date is July 8th. 1870. From James B. Ferguson, the editor of The Pioneer. Fourth of July Celebration. The celebration of our national birthday, the ever-memorable Fourth of July, was pretty generally observed on Monday last throughout the country. In many of our sister states, the day was celebrated in a truly grand and patriotic manner. In our own state, the Fourth was also generally observed and orators, as usual, poured forth eloquent and long-winded orations. The roar of cannon, the rattle of musketry, and the shrill, beautiful notes of bugle and fife, together with the everlasting rub-a-dub-dub of the ancient kettle drum, reverberated in echoes long and loud. Troops with bright uniforms and glistening bayonets paraded the streets from morn till eve. Flags floated gaily out upon the breeze. Bells rang. Fireworks shot their lurid way upward, and balloons sailed far away up into heaven's blue ether. The boys, young America, enjoyed themselves handsomely by whistling, cheering, hallooing, shooting torpedoes, skyrockets, and firecrackers. Altogether, the celebration was more generally national than any that the country had for a number of years. In Cumberland County, the people held two celebrations— one at Bridgeton and the other at Millville. The colored citizens of Bridgeton and vicinity also held a celebration in the Grove, near the county house on the Bowenton Road, at which Reverend Mr. Holland made a good, sound, substantial address, counseling the newly enfranchised to make themselves true, honest, upright, and intelligent patriotic citizens. At Millville, a very large concourse of people was in attendance from Vinland, Maurice River, and surrounding townships. In the morning, there was a grand parade of the military and civic societies under the command of Major Wells. A monument to the memory of our fallen soldiery was dedicated with Masonic ceremonies under the auspices of the Grand Army of the Republic. Speeches were made during the exercises by Honorable James H. Nixon, Captain John W. Newland, Reverend Henry M. Brown, 
and Major Calhoun of Philadelphia. In the afternoon, the exercises were mostly of a musical character, a large choir of beautiful singers participating therein. A novel feature of the entertainment was found in a grand concert under the direction of Professor Allen, where 24 of Bruce's SD organs were performing all at once, filling the air with most delicious music. The Celebration in This City At an early hour on the morning of the eventful day, our citizens were aroused from their peaceful slumbers by the loud, rumbling tones of the hoarse-mouthed cannon, cracking firearms, and merry ringing bells. By nine o'clock, carriages from the country came rolling in, and the streets were soon filled with gay equipages, carriages and buggies of all descriptions, wagons, and still more gay pedestrians. Indeed, for a time, our principal thoroughfare seemed literally alive with long and continuous crowds of youth and beauty. At 10 o'clock, the grand procession was formed on Laurel Street, head of column resting on Commerce. The following was the order of procession. Daniel M. Woodruff, Marshal and Aides. Germania Band, Professor Brown, Leader. Company B, National Guards. Battle Flag of Company F, 3rd Regiment, New Jersey. Drum Corps. American Mechanics in Full Regalia. Section of Artillery. Flags and Banners. Junior American Mechanics, Full Regalia. Barouche with Orators and Reader. Mayor and City Council. Clergy in Carriages. Committee of Arrangements. And finally, Citizens and Strangers. All along the route of parade from Laurel Street to the grove in the rear of the new Presbyterian Church, West Bridgeton, there was one enthusiastic outburst of patriotic feeling. Flags waved across streets and floated out from housetops, balconies, and piazzas. Bells rang. Music rolled out upon the air clear and sweet, and fair ladies fluttered white handkerchiefs in recognition of cheers from the brave soldier boys. The day was a beautiful one. The sun shone brightly down upon the tramping column, bathing the starry banner of the Republic, as it were in a sea of glory, and bringing vividly to the minds of all who looked on a picture of the long and bloody struggle which our forefathers fought successfully through, in order that they might bequeath to us a pure liberty and an unstained escutcheon. On arrival at the Grove, the troops stacked arms, and after music by the band, Reverend I.D. King, pastor of Commerce Street M.E. Church, delivered an eloquent prayer. J. Boyd Nixon Esquire was then introduced and read the Declaration of Independence in a clear and able manner. Reverend Dr. Spear of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church introduced to the assemblage the eloquent young soldier orator Major Calhoun, of Philadelphia, who in consequence of an engagement at Millville was compelled to deliver but a brief speech. The speaker, in the course of his address, remarked in substance that, quote, We meet together on this national holiday, the 94th anniversary of American independence, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as American citizens and freemen. When in 1861, said the orator, a party of men, not particularly Democrats or Republicans, raised their hands against the life of the government and tore down the nation's flag. Then the patriots of the land, the Union men of the country, sprang as a unit to arms. Down to the field of battle they went, and victory, after a four years' fearful conflict, rested upon our standards, born to us not on Republican bayonets or Democratic bayonets, 
but upon the Union bayonets of the Republic. Major Calhoun recalled to the minds of his hearers the early history of the colonies, their revolt from British authority, with only 13 states and 3 millions of people, their great triumph over tyranny and despotism, and their subsequent glorious career in the March of Progress. From 3 millions, they had increased to 40, and from covering but a small area of the Atlantic coast, they had spread across a continent, driving the savages before them and belting the nation with telegraph and railroads. From 13 stars on our beautiful flag, there had sprang 23 more, making a bright, glistening constellation of 36 stars in its field of blue. The speaker closed, with the hope that partisan bitterness might depart from us, and peace, unity, and a higher state of advancement and prosperity prevail. At the close of Major Calhoun's address, T.K. Cross Esquire of Philadelphia entertained the audience with a solid patriotic speech, in which he followed the history of our country from its birth down through the long years of the past to the present time, and eloquently depicted for her a still more bright and successful future. After singing and some choice music rendered by the band, the benediction was pronounced and the exercises came to an end. The procession then reformed, marched down Commerce to the armory of Company B, and there dismissed. In the afternoon, the Germania Band discoursed delicious music from the balcony of Davis's hotel to the people upon the thronged street below. During the day, an excursion arrived from Salem on the steamer John S. Ide, all of whom conducted themselves in an orderly manner and departed well-pleased with their visit. About the usual amount of drunkenness prevailed, rum, of course, being a necessary adjunct for the preservation of certain individuals' equilibrium on such great occasions. Some few accidents occurred, several fences giving way with their load of people, and in one or two cases, carriages were overturned. But no serious damages were sustained. The day passed off generally pleasant, everybody appearing to enjoy themselves. In the evening, there was a magnificent display of fireworks on the hill, near the house and grounds of Robert C. Nichols Esquire, East Avenue. The collection was fine, being, co being composed of many choice specimens of pyrotechnic skill. For about two hours and a half, the skies were lit up with blazing rockets of blue, green, crimson, and yellow hues. Spinning wheels of a gorgeously brilliant character whirled and whizzed in the air, throwing off showers of fiery glowing particles. Chasers hissed through the air, and the beautiful starry rockets shot heavenward, while blue and white lights cast their mellowness far around. At the close of the display, the assemblage which numbered between three and four thousand people silently departed for their homes, and the great 4th of July celebration of 1870 was ended. At Marshallville, near Tuckahoe, the citizens had a pleasant little gathering with the usual festivities. At Cape May Courthouse, the ladies of the Baptist Church arranged for the celebration of the day by an oration in the morning from F.F. Westcott Esquire of our city, and another in the afternoon from Mr. Bullitt Esquire of Philadelphia. We were not able to learn the particulars, but presume it passed off well. At Dennisville, the ladies of the Methodist Church took charge of their proper observance of the day. Their festivities were held in the grove, near where the Baptists are erecting a new and elegant temple of worship, and which grove was fitted up in a style of tasteful beauty which only ladies could have originated. 
The speaker's stand was a perfect bower of wreaths, and was filled with a band of music, an organ, a choir of singers, and the speakers. Reverend Mr. Eastlack officiated as chaplain of the day. Mr. Holmes read the Declaration of Independence, and Reverend A. E. Ballard delivered the oration. In the afternoon, there was another address by Reverend Mr. Turpin, and in the evening by Reverend Mr. Lippincott, the pastor, who gave a most interesting lecture on the Pacific Coast, with which he had been made familiar by the actual travel of years in the Methodist itineracy. And there you have it, folks, a first-hand recording of the joyous celebrations of the July 4th festivities there in New Jersey, 1870, Bridgeton, New Jersey, specifically. What a glorious day it must have been, and huge thanks to the West Jersey Pioneer, that article coming to us from July 8th, 1870. Today we move from one grand American tradition to another, from the 4th of July to women's suffrage. Our next article coming to us from the Perth Amboy Evening News, Perth Amboy, New Jersey. The date is now Tuesday, October 12th, 1920. On this Tuesday evening, we find ourselves in league with women voters. The headline reads, Women Oppose Men With Past. Women's votes will drive them from politics, says Mrs. O.W. Ramsey are urged to register. A well-attended meeting yesterday afternoon, issues of the campaign outlined. And the article begins. To see that all the women of the city, whether Republican or Democrats, are registered before 10 o'clock tonight so that they will be able to vote at the general election on November 2nd was the purpose of the meeting held yesterday afternoon in the Republican club rooms, as stated by Mrs. Oliver W. Ramsey, State Vice Chairman of the Republican Women's Organization in Middlesex County. About 35 women were present at the meeting, and the captains of the various wards were appointed to accomplish as much as possible in the short time left. The women were urged to get in touch with as many women as possible who have not registered and bring them to the polls before the closing time tonight. Mrs. Ramsey then addressed the meeting and explained the issues nationally and locally, beginning by saying that, Quote, the general election on November 2nd will be a national landslide for the Republicans. The Democrats have convicted themselves. End quote. She urged the women to vote the straight Republican ticket so that the administration will have the support of the House and so that it will not be handicapped as it has been during the past administration. Mrs. Ramsey concluded her talk by saying that, quote, women will supply the thing that is lacking in politics, the men with a past or the rotten men won't dare to run for office, end quote. Mrs. W. W. Oliver also spoke at the meeting. She asked whether it will be possible for the women to keep a high standard in politics, whether they will keep from knocking each other. She said it had been a serious problem in her mind for some time. Mrs. Ramsey answered her by saying that this would be possible, but only if the women remember that it is not a question of personal issues, but a question of political issues when voting at the polls. Mrs. Morgan Larson stated that she agreed with Mrs. Ramsey and that she believed that politics will be cleaner because of women voting. Several other women spoke, and the meeting was adjourned. Other meetings will be held in the near future. So, we, I mean, we have to start with a, a broad clap on the back and a show of support there for Mrs. Ramsey, who correctly predicted the future 
Of course, 1920, we saw Woodrow Wilson uh, hoping for a third term, but not supported by his party due to his ailing health, mostly. And uh, in the 1920 election, of course, Warren Harding pretty handily won up against the Democrat James M. Cox, uh, possibly thanks to these women who were running to keep those filthy Democrats and men with pasts out of office. What a delightful story, uh, and certainly uplifting uh, the sort of joy and excitement that we hear in all of these articles from the 1920s. What an optimistic start to the decade it was. I hope that we can find the same optimism as we start our own decade in 2020. All right, let's move on now to our next article from just 50 years ago, 1970. Our 1970 article comes to us from the Commercial Leader and South Bergen Review from Lyndhurst, New Jersey. The date is September 3rd, 1970. You can get a copy of the Commercial Leader in 1970 for 10 cents per copy. And congratulations to the Commercial Leader and South Bergen Review. It was their 50th year in 1970, so they actually started the same year as our previous paper did. Uh, but this article, slightly different than women's suffrage. We have got an article for our teachers and education enthusiasts out here. Uh, you'll be very intrigued to hear the next article from the Commercial Leader and South Bergen Review entitled, Schools Opening Next Wednesday. It is back to school next Wednesday for South Bergen youngsters. Throughout the area, schools have been spiffed up, washed up, painted up, renovated. Floors will sparkle. Blackboards will shine. And the teachers will be the best paid and most attractive in the history of education. A beginning teacher in any of the local schools will have a bachelor degree and will merit $7,400 to start. The teacher can progress in quick stages to tops of over $12,000. If the teachers get the master's, they can advance to $8,100, and then in stages, progress to over $13,000, depending where the teacher teaches. Teacher salaries moved up about 12% over last year. The starting average is $7,600, which leaves the South Bergen schedules about $200 behind. Inglewood, however has the top starting salary of $8,300. Bergen ranks third in the state after Essex and Union in starting pay, and second after Essex in maximum salaries. The big pay boosts won by teachers in recent years hasn't satisfied them, however. The New Jersey Education Association says, We have a whole lot of catching up to do. However, the sudden abundance of teachers turned out by the teacher colleges, and the economic decline, may halt some of the frantic pay demands. In the homes of many of the teachers, the economic pinch is being felt. Jobs have become scarcer, and overtime allotments out. The stability of teacher wages always makes them more desirable in times of economic tightness. Teachers have scant time to think of salaries for some weeks. On Tuesday, they begin a round of meetings that will run throughout the day, so that they can be at their desks Wednesday to meet the flow of children. Changes in administration setups are few. However, in East Rutherford, there will be a new vice principal, Joseph Morris. A high school teacher in Lyndhurst for many years, Morris resigned to take up his new post. At the same time, he gave up his place on the East Rutherford Board of Education to assume his new role in the high school there. For East Rutherford High School, it will mark the passing of the old school. Near Riggan Field, the area's first regional high school, Henry Becton Regional High, to serve East Rutherford and Carlstad, is rising. It will welcome the students next year. 
During the summer, the hope that Sakaka students might be accommodated in East Rutherford was snuffed out. No agreement on the program could be reached. In North Arlington, the Board of Education took over the controversial field house that has been created more problems in the borough than a new school building. The dedication of the field house is scheduled tentatively for November 7th, homecoming day. Awaited with interest are the enrollment figures for the municipalities. The tentative population figures show that both North Arlington and Rutherford apparently grew but little in the span from 1960 to 1970. According to the figures released last week, North Arlington's population is 19,600 against 17,426 in 1960. Rutherford's is 20,772 as against 20,440 in 1960. Lindhurst's East Rutherford's and Karlstad's figures have not yet been released. However, they are not expected on the basis of the country results to show sizable growth. This would indicate that school enrollments should be leveling off and costs with them. So the last half of the article a little bit dry, but the first half really going to show exactly what teacher salaries looked like back in those days. Now, I am going to take just a moment uh, to tell you guys what those numbers actually look like. So again, if you were a new teacher in this area, uh, your annual salary would be $7,400. And uh, that was in 1970. In 2020, that means a new teacher would have started out at a salary of $50,204 with a bachelor's degree in their hands. Uh, now, assuming you made it all the way to the high end of the pay scale, looks like just over uh, $12,000, a total of $12,580. So if you have your bachelor's degree and it taught for a while and earned your way up the salary ladder, uh, in, in 1970, you'd be making $12,580, which in 2020 is $85,000 and a bit of change. And finally, assume that you had your master's degree. Your total cost or your total salary in 1970 would be $13,890, which in today would be $94,234 a year. I don't know what teachers make in 2020. I'm going to take a wild guess and say, even with master's degrees, it's not 94000 Different times. I particularly like the part of the beginning that said the teacher salaries moved up about 12% last year, and that didn't seem to be enough. <laughs> so that'll close out the 1970 article, and we'll move on now to 1995. From local public policy to more local public policy, we're finding a bit of a trend here in some of our articles this week. Uh, our next article comes to us from uh, Thursday, May 11th, 1995, from the South Plainfield Reporter. Uh, our last newspaper cost 10 cents, and this one, of course, is up to 50 cents an issue. So, from the South Plainfield Reporter, the next article is entitled, Officials Shoot Down Comcast Request for a New Cellular Tower, by R.H. Smith Jr., the reporter. The Zoning Board of Adjustment shot down Comcast Cellular Communications' recent bid to build a 90-foot cellular communications tower in one of the borough's industrial zones. The unanimous May 2nd decision was heralded by several residents who attended the meeting with the attorney they had hired to stop the cellular communication firm's application. David Frizzell, attorney for the residents, said the borough is unwisely targeted for this kind of development because of its proximity to Interstate 287. This is definitely not the best site for this communications tower, he said. 
The residents don't want it because of development and safety reasons, but it's also not the best location for the company either. The attorney said Comcast should consider placing antenna on a Nextel tower two miles away from the now-disapproved site. That tower was built without contention last year, according to board officials. But that idea was called Unrealistic by David Stern, a radio frequency expert for Comcast. It would broadcast signal strength all over Middlesex County, he said. It would cause too much noise and interference and would not allow us to provide coverage to our customers. Mr. Frizzell blasted the communications company last month, saying its officials were insensitive to future business development in the vicinity of the proposed tower. What do they care if they make the borough look like a pole farm, he asked. They don't care. Gregory Tsura, an attorney for Comcast, did not see it that way, however, and pointed out that several courts have ruled that cellular towers are inherently beneficial to the municipalities in which they are placed. Mr. Sura called the facility inert, and said it would not be a threat to future construction in the area. But, in the end, it was the residents whose voices traveled on the right frequency, and reached the ears of the zoning board members. Comcast representatives said they may consider looking elsewhere in the borough, or they may seek an appropriate location outside of the borough. In any case, the need to fill the communications hole remains, the representative said. A classic case of not in my backyardism there from the South Plainfield Reporter. Again, that was uh, May 11th, 1995. And that is going to wrap for all four of our uh, normal articles. But of course, as usual, I do have one fun bonus article that I found that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. Our bonus article comes to us again from the West Jersey Pioneer, our first article, our first newspaper of the day, uh, from West Jersey in Bridgeton, New Jersey. Uh, this one, this article comes from December second, eighteen seventy, and is entitled "Underground Railroad." A few years ago, this term, uh, m- meaning Underground Railroad, was one of special significance. It was not supposed to represent any special lines of iron track, nor was it understood to mean a tunnel through the bowels of the earth. Its significance lay in its mystery, and its meaning was found in the manner in which the colored people of the South were forwarded by night from place to place in their onward flight to Canada, then the paradise of fugitives from slavery. Afterward, a class of religious writers appropriated it with a directly opposite idea. Instead of being an escape from slavery— It was applied to mean a passageway toward regions which mankind were specifically desirous to avoid. Later still, however, the idea has assumed a practical shape, and an underground railroad is actually in existence in the city of New York. The track runs under the city at a depth of 17 feet, and the cars are to be propelled at the rate of 30 miles an hour. There are no horses or locomotives, nothing but two immensely large rings which induce an amount of atmospheric pressure that acts as motive power. There is no longer any doubt as to its success, and the Underground Railroad, propelled without visible motive, is now a fixed fact. So I know some of you engineering junkies listening to the podcast may be thinking, wait a minute, 1870, New York's subway system didn't start until the early 1900s, And you're absolutely correct. This is a a very early example of a a, basically a test for what would eventually become the New York subway. Uh, What this article is referring to is now known as Beach 
pneumatic transit, which was like an underground pneumatic uh, train that went for about one block back and forth. And it was more or less an amusement park ride, sort of used as proof of concept for what would eventually become uh, the actual New York subway system. Uh, So a fascinating story from 1870 covering the latest technology news of the day, the Underground Railroad. Well, that's going to wrap it up for me here uh, for our New Jersey episode of Pages from Before. Hope you guys get to tune in next week for our very first Southern State, where we're going to tackle four news articles from Georgia. Uh, The 1870 article, particularly interesting, uh, the antebellum South just after the Civil War. Pages from Before is written, produced, and narrated by myself, Creighton Olson. Thank you all so much for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you next week.